moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Previously on Cascading Leadership. How do you bridge that gap, that operational disconnect between deal volume and top of funnel activity and bring everybody together to understand what that pipeline really needs to look like to impact that right-hand side of the spreadsheet or the right-hand side of the column that everybody cares about? I'll tell you, I actually, what you do is you actually work backwards, right? And you use journal data. The nice things about operations folks is often they have strong backgrounds in organization. They have strong backgrounds in maybe engineering. They may have a finance background, but operations folks are always focused on numbers. How many can I build? How fast can I build them? Right. And so as a salesperson, and maybe it's because I'm a technical salesperson, right? We use data to make arguments all the time. We are less aligned. Certainly people buy from people and you have to honor people's feelings and you have to respect people's feelings. And the salespeople in the technical world deal in, we deal in making sure that we are addressing our customers' fear as likely as any other sales group does. But we often use numbers and data and concrete examples to make that case. So you start with the conversation around, okay, so our average selling price is, and you want us to sell two instruments a month. Okay. So we look at the given salesperson, it's $150,000 sale. You want this individual to sell two instruments a month in order to pay themselves, pay the bills and grow. And so they have to sell two instruments a month at $150,000. We have to have in order to do that. And we know our sales cycle is six to 12 months. So in six to 12 months previous, we have to have 20 opportunities in order to sell those two because external data shows that you close one for every 10 and you close one for every 10 because people lose money, their projects change. And now the conversation continues with our featured guest on Cascading Leadership. Welcome back to another great episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your host, And I'm going to shorten up this title because LB gives me so much grief. (laughs) I am just plain old Dr. Jim. And with me, I have my co-host. I am Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB. Yeah, that was brief. You're mocking me already? I don't like where this show is going. It'll be a good one. Yeah, it will be a good one. I'm pretty excited to have our, our featured guest back. For those of us that joined us in the previous episode, we were setting the stage for a sales effectiveness masterclass. And we're... We're walking through an end-to-end approach on not only selecting top sales talent, but developing them and then doing some of the blocking and tackling that's necessary to build elite teams. And that's part of the reason why we had Carrie on the show. But I want to hit rewind real quick and set a little bit of context. So Carrie, I want you to go back into the not-so-way-back machine and tell us a little bit about some of the accomplishments that you had knocked down as an individual contributor. Okay. So I've always worked in the scientific community. 
in capital equipment sales as well as sort of renewable sales. And starting way back at the beginning of my career, I would have quotas that were a million-ish dollars on a deal size that was anywhere from ten dollars to $60,000, but that was 25 years ago. Over the course of my career, I've had deals that were upwards of a million dollars that were pretty complex enterprise software sales. And quotas anywhere from a million dollars as an individual contributor to $125 million when I was responsible for the consumables business at a major analytical chemistry company. So it runs the gamut. If you had to ballpark the amount of revenue that you had generated for your organizations as an individual contributor, where do you think that ballpark number would land? I would have to say 50 million plus. I'm looking at the I'm looking at my wall of recognition over here that my daughter put up for me the other day because I left it all in a box. I would say my best year was six million dollars as an individual contributor, again with that sort of fifty to a hundred thousand dollar price point. When people ask me what I'm most proud of, the year that I had my middle daughter, I was pregnant or on maternity leave for six months of the year. And I was the number one sales rep in the world. That's awesome. So I want to spin that forward. So that was your individual con- contributor track record. Now let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your team experience. When you were leading, building, and developing teams, what were you said that you had teams that had combined quota upwards of 100 million or something like that? If if I remember correctly, give me a sense for what that team experience looked like and what those quotas looked like and what you were able to drive as a leader of a team. So when I was the director of the consumables business at the scientific company I was referring to earlier, the national I was the director of North America. It was a highly matrixed organization. And so I had some of the team that were that reported to me directly, some of the marketing team reported to me directly. And then there were field sales reps that were more dotted line kind of scenarios. And those teams, that was more of a consumables business kind of scenario. And they would also have four to $8 million territories. And we used to joke that the deal size in that space, we did $125 million, $1,500 at a time. If you divided the number of transactions by the dollar, it was $125 million, $1,500 at a time. Wow. That's, that is a high volume of deals. When you encapsulate your career to this point as a sales leader, how much revenue do you would you ballpark your teams have driven to the organizations that you uh, you supported? Oh, it would be hundreds of millions, but I haven't really stopped and done the math. It's been capital teams that had on balance sixteen million up to the consumables team that was one hundred and twenty five million since two thousand and nine was when I started in sales leadership. That's a great bit of context. And then one last element on the team conversations. When Throughout your career as a sales leader, how many people on your teams in a ballpark again have qualified for president's clubs, national awards, that sort, of st- that sort of stuff? Give us a sense of that. So a fair number. So the one year we had, as a team, had a really amazing year. And I think I had eight people on my team. And of the eight people, three of them were in the top 10. And were, so t- the top top 10 individual contributors were President's Club. That was fun. Really just, I, I don't know, quite a few, quite a few. Would it be safe to say that as a sales leader, you have, let's say, 10, 15 years in, in that sales leadership position, 
would it be safe to say you have, you've had at least one person qualify for president's club each of those years? I don't know that it would be fair to do that because it would depend on which team I was working with. When it was just me and individual contributors, then yes. But when it was more director level, then everybody was on my team and the Got entirety it. of President's Club was on my team. The main reason why I wanted to go through that is to communicate to the audience that this is not some low-level schlub that's talking all theoretical. This is somebody that's had a track record of not only producing at the individual contributor level, but also at the team level and building elite teams. So this is just not some superficial theoretical conversation that we're having. We actually have somebody who is a heavy hitter in a highly technical sales process coming in and talking about that. I always feel, I always feel uncomfortable talking about achievements. Yeah. I kind of caught that, right? It's it, You don't want to sound like you're actually bragging, but that piece about being on maternity leave for, for six months and being number one, that's like straight flexing. And that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I did have one, I did have one kind of a more of a philosophical question because I'm on geek about education and all that. How did you handle the actual transition from individual contributor? Because I hear this quite a bit of, from sales leaders early in their careers is how did you address or how did you feel about or how did you attack going from an individual contributor to a sales leader? You know what? The, when I moved from being an individual contributor to a sales leader, I was, I knew I was good at selling. I know that you did a, a review of some of Malcolm Gladwell's stuff. Yes. Yeah. The book Outliers, that's yes. the whole theory of 10,000 hours. I, I hit 10,000 hours. I, I actually went back and did the math after I read that book. And I went, oh, that makes so much sense because I really felt like I had mastered selling, that anything more that I did in selling was going to be tweaking and that it was time to do something different because it was very quickly getting a, not challenging, right? So I knew I had a really robust background, right? And that I like to coach. I'd always like to coach. And so when a leadership position to open within my company, I applied for it. And the team that I took over was actually the team that I had been on. And everyone on the team was older than me and more senior. And I approached it with humility. I, when I screwed up, it was, I screwed up. I always learned, you learn best from your scripts. It was when I tried to tell somebody who had been selling longer than me, how to sell. And it, unsurprisingly, he was pretty upset about that. But humility, quite frankly, that I am new to this space that I'm good at sales, but this is not sales anymore. This is managing people. And I'd not done that before. And not only was I managing people, these weren't athletes. These weren't people that were enough. These were people whose lives I could affect. And you start thinking about, okay, this individual is an underperformer and I have some choices here. And if I make a bad choice, I'm talking about someone's livelihood. I'm talking about their ability to feed their family. And so I approached sales leadership as a new leader with humility. Awesome. Thank you. In our last episode, we spent quite a bit of time talking about hiring strategy in general and some of the tactics that you used in your highly specialized and technical world. I want to bring that up a level. Let's just assume that whoever's in a hiring position within sales is are looking for profiles that align with the requirements of the job. So whatever those requirements are, a candidate is close enough to warrant a conversation. Now, when you're having the conversation, what are the things 
that you believe are the best practices or core competencies required for sales success that you interview for versus uh, beyond just what's on paper and what they've produced in previous roles? A couple of things. First of all, because our sales are very technical, I'm not looking for someone who can, we call it show up and throw up. I'm not looking for someone who can vomit specs or who can talk about the science all day long. That's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in people who can connect the dots, who can ask a series of questions of customers that will relate the technical specifications and the value of the product to the everyday workflow of the customer, right? You can have an instrument that is the fastest and the most sensitive and the best at whatever it does, and it will absolutely not fit in a given laboratory. And the better salesperson is going to figure out that their maybe less sensitive, less fast instrument will work better in that laboratory because of whatever their workflow is. And so I'm looking for someone who can connect the dots. And so you're looking for someone who's curious. You're looking for someone who asks a lot of questions. In the first interview, when I say, and what are your questions for me? If they don't have four or five, I'm done. Oh no, I'm good. That is, you're, we're done. The other thing I'm looking for is long-term thinking. What do you think is the most important thing about sales? And when people talk about building business and building long-term relationships, as opposed to getting the most revenue as fast as, I, as humanly possible or driving revenue, we, yeah, that's sales, right? But how do you do that? So I'm looking for people that are focused on building relationships, building business, building long-term strength. And more senior reps will know figuring out with younger people is tougher or people who are earlier in their sales career because they don't, they may not have had that experience. So with them, oftentimes what I'm listening for are the times that they've struggled and then persevered. Tell me about a time where things didn't go your way and what did you do? And so I'm looking for that resilience. I had a candidate the other day who's earlier in his career. And he said, I was taking a class and it was really hard. So I dropped it. Okay. Maybe not the right answer. So yeah. So we're just, I'm looking for, I'm looking for grit. I'm looking for resilience. I'm looking for tenacity. I'm looking for times when they've had difficult times and pushed through it. I'm looking for critical thinking those kinds of things. One thing that you mentioned in there provides a great segue into the rest of our conversation. We're going to focus this conversations in the air, in the area of customer centric selling and also navigating that complex deal cycle and stakeholder landscape and shepherding a deal along. You said that you're trying to identify people that have a relationship first focus and I'm paraphrasing. Long-term thinking as one of the key criteria for sales success. So how does that capability or that competency tie into customer-centric selling? So customer-centric, it's relationship-based selling is important, but you cannot always have a good relationship with customers. You are going to run across customers that you just flat out don't like. I have joked that I would sell a chromatographic instrument to the devil himself if he had 50 grand. And you can edit that out if you want. I don't care, but I got to feed my kids. At any rate, customer-centric actually 
puts the relationship slightly as number two a little bit in the sense that it doesn't matter if you like the customer. It doesn't matter if you're going to have a long-term relationship with the customer. Your goal is to look at the requirements of the customer, the needs of the customer very broadly, right? Not just the individual that you're dealing with, but the environment that you are trying to provide a solution for. Because you never have one customer. You have the person that called you or the person that sent you the email and then all of the people around them. The person that called you might be the person that's going to be using the instrument, but the person that's going to make the decision is two levels above that individual. You may be talking to an entire laboratory full of technical folks that know how they need the software to work, for example. But if you don't involve the IT person, you're done. They can walk in at the 11th hour after you've been working for six months or a year on a million dollar project and go, this is not going to work in our IT infrastructure. This is a complete waste of time. So there are the customer is a, it's not an individual. It's them plus the entire organization that surrounds them that has the ability to influence their decision. So being customer centric is not just a relationship. It is being focused on everything that goes around that. You can have a great relationship with an individual and still lose. That's absolutely, absolutely true. I think the other thing that, that Carrie, that you touch on is, and we had talked about this a little bit earlier, and I think even in the past episode is about the stakeholders. So as I was listening to what you were saying, that whole ecosystem, right? Because to your point, and I've actually seen this in a couple of occasions, and I was chuckling about the that tech at the end, that no one bothered to engage all of the necessary stakeholders, and then the deal actually fell flat. And having seen that experience again, I was chuckling about it. My question is that as you think about, you're talking about stakeholders with relationship to the to your client, right? And the client being much larger than just an individual. Talk about the actual stakeholders that are in the full system that will help drive what your engagement plan will be towards the end user? That's a great question. And in our space, and I would imagine in other spaces, you can be contacted by individuals in just about any part of the organization. So you might be contacted as a salesperson by a purchasing agent. You might be contacted by the IT person who has been tasked to be the project manager for a complex enterprise software sale because they know they need an upgrade or improvement or some kind of compliance that they don't currently have. But the people that are going to use the software are certainly not the IT people. They're individuals in the laboratory, they're managers of compliance, they're people in quality. And so you have generally, you have end users, you have what we would call influencers, have technical buyers, and you would put IT in that technical buyer. You have, of course, economic buyers. So the people that have the ability to sign off on. And depending on the company you're working with, that sign off could be $5,000, it could be $10,000, it could be a million dollars that you can have sales that can be signed off on by a contributor. You can have sales that have to be signed off on by the CEO. And by the way, the CEO is in Switzerland. So it can be a pretty broad range. And so what you have to do, but again, going back to customer-centric selling is at the very, very beginning. Oh, this is a million dollar sale. 
this is not a $10,000 sale. So the chances that this decision is going to be made where you're sitting is pretty slim. So again, that critical thinking. When this person says to me, I get to decide, is that really true? Who are you talking to? What's their title? So now you got to get good at how do you dig into who's actually going to make the decision? And so now you're starting to talk about questions. So talking about a pretty important piece of equipment, it's going to go into a deployment that includes lots of regulation. Who's the quality person that's going to be involved in this? Who's the regulatory that's going to be involved in this? Who's the metrology folks that are going to be responsible for fixing this? This is a really big We have a saying in sales that if you're going to lose, don't lose alone, right? So if you're going to decide on something, don't decide alone because it works both ways. And so really what comes into it is now your questioning skills. And at the very beginning, setting the stage for, I know this is going to take six months. I know there are going to be 30 people involved. Let's start talking about those folks today and what our next steps are to make sure that we help all of those people be comfortable with your decision, because you told me you were going to decide. That's awesome. But there's probably other people that have to be comfortable with your decision. So let's talk about that. Carrie, it sounds like that's also transferable too, because what you're talking about is not necessarily focusing on the economic buyer only, which means that in any sales transaction, right, you want to make sure that you're adhering to that methodology that you've just taken us through. Just tying in the what you were saying about the economic buyer not being the only person as a focal point. Economic buyer is rarely the decision maker in our world. So I want to throw out a scenario, and this is something that anybody that's in sales leadership has dealt with. At some point early in our career, we've been conditioned to say, hey, you only want to deal with the decision maker. And if you're not dealing with that person, you're just wasting your time. Why is that just complete? Well, I, my opinion, why is that thinking just complete BS when it comes to a complex sale? Because there's always someone above that decision maker that can blow it up. And they can blow it up for a variety of reasons that has nothing to do with the capability of the individual that is making, that is supposedly making the decision, right? So oftentimes, if So for example, let's say you have a customer that's trying to decide to purchase a widget. It's a really expensive widget. It's a $400,000 widget. And they are the decision maker, the technical decision maker, right? And you speak to them and you say, okay, so who, I'd like to speak with whomever, these decisions never get made by one person. Who else is involved? And you find out who the users are. And you get the feeling that they all like the guy that's or the woman that's making the decision. And the manager is going to have to sign off on it. Okay, great. Or the director is going to have to sign off on it. Can I meet him? Yep. The director says to you straight to your face, I will do what Sarah recommends. I will sign off on whatever Sarah recommends. So Sarah recommends your widget. And true to word, the director signs off on Sarah's widget. And then it goes to the VP of quality or the VP of R&D or the VP of finance. And that individual says, I've never seen this company before. I don't know who they are. I know this other company that you also looked at. They're about the same price. You will buy them because I know them. Someone can always blow it up. IT can blow it up. Quality can blow it up. That is using So you may have the decision-making ability at your site, but there may be another site that has 
50 of another company's widget, and they may come in and go, why are you buying this widget? We already have 50 of these other ones. And so a complex sale, typically when you're, it's, I would say that 10% of the time you're dealing with one site with one group of decision makers that has no influence on them from somewhere else. It's pretty rare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.